tonight, over 100 million people are expected to watch this little thing on TV called the Super Bowl, right? And many in this room will likely care more about the commercials that will take place during the Super Bowl than the game itself. Did you know this year the average price for a Super Bowl spot commercial is $5 million? For a 30-second slot, advertisers will pay $5 million for a 30-second spot. And Forbes had an article online this week showing what a deal that is. It really is. It's one of the best deals in advertising because they're about four to five cents per viewer when you think about it. And a sitcom, ad, a sitcom or something like that has way, it has higher costs than that and people actually watch the Super Bowl commercials, right? We all, we all zip past the other commercials. They, they actually watch these and the, really the only commercial out there they said is cheaper is the online commercials like when you're trying to watch a YouTube video or something you have to watch that stupid 15 second commercial. So they consider it one of the best deals in advertising. $5 million a spot. Now let me ask you, why is it you think that a company will spend $5 million to get you to see a product or try to sell you a product? And it's real simple. It's because it works, right? They, they, we're suckers to a large degree, most of us. And if you notice, most of advertising is this. If you had X, this, fill in the blank, your life would be better. Let me show you. I don't care if it's a bag of potato chips right? They're selling you really more on a vision than they are on a product even of your life. Your life will be better if you had this. If you just had that car, that piece of new technology, whatever it is, if you just had this, your life would be better. And if we got really honest this morning, the world and our culture, our country, our churches are full of a lot of people that just aren't real satisfied or content in life. They're discontent. They feel like something's missing. And in this morning's text, Jesus tells us the only way to find true and lasting satisfaction. See, we're in the Beatitudes. Uh, we jumped back in this week in the fourth uh, Beatitude this morning. And Jesus this morning is speaking about desire. He's talking about soul hunger we're going to find this morning in Matthew 5, 6. See, the Beatitudes are the intro to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, if you're new with us, is basically Jesus saying, here's how life is supposed to be in the kingdom. Matthew tells us Jesus is the king who has come ushering in the kingdom of God, and he gets to the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon Jesus ever preached, that's ever been preached by anybody, and Jesus says, here's what life is supposed to be like when you come under my reign. When I rule and reign in your heart and life, this is what life's supposed to look like. And the Beatitudes, those little piety statements we see there at the front, they're so catchy that we put on coffee cups and they're some of the most memorable parts of Scripture are the intro to that sermon. And they're really like characteristics, you might say, of Christians. It's a picture of the heart yielded to Jesus as King. It's a picture of the heart yielded to Jesus as King. So when that's not a picture of what our heart looks like, what that tells us is something's wrong. Either number one, we don't know the King. Or number two, maybe in this moment in time in our life, we're not walking with the king as we should be. And in the first few weeks here of the Beatitudes, we've talked about how you see this word blessed a lot of times. Or depending on how, what, how you read the Bible, maybe it's blessed to you, right? Um, same thing, right? And we see this word over and over again, and it means happy or fortunate or favored. Not happy like we think of it. It's basically the, it's a state of being that all is well between you and God, and all is well between you and God because God says all is well between you and God. Not because you say so, because God says so. Statement of his favor, over you're fortunate because God has smiled on you is basically what he is saying. 
And we talked about the poor in spirit in week one and how that is those who are empty and spiritually know that they're empty and that they have nothing to offer to God. So they come to God with open hands saying, I have nothing to bring you. I'm dependent on you. And everybody is poor in spirit, but Jesus is talking about those who know and sense and feel that they're poor in spirit. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. And that's those that feel godly sorrow over sin in their life and in the world and all of its effects. And they mourn that and long for restoration. And then meekness we talked about. Blessed are the meek. They'll inherit the earth. That's the last one we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And that the meek are those who are trusting in God, who are relying on God, who are resting in God, who are submitted to God. And therefore, that affects how they relate to others. They're more gentle and servant-hearted towards others. And Jesus said it's those people that will inherit the earth. And then we get to Matthew 5, 6. One of the more memorable, one of the more visual. They're all important, but man, one that we really need to focus on this morning. Matthew 5, 6. Let's read it together. It'll be on the screen for you if you don't have the scripture with you this morning. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now remember, these are what we call exclusive statements. These are not a group of people who are among the satisfied. Jesus is saying very clearly, it is only those that hunger and thirst for righteousness that will be ultimately satisfied. In this passage, Jesus is telling us the secret to contentment, the secret to satisfaction in life and in eternity. Tim Keller, in his, one of his newest books, a book called Making Sense of God, notes how psychologist Jonathan Haidt has pointed out that there is a, quote, very weak correlation between wealth and contentment. The more prosperous a society grows, the more common is depression. Think about that for a second. He's saying the more prosperous and wealthy a society grows, the more they struggle with a de depression because there's just not much correlation between things you have and possessions you have and actual happiness and satisfaction. Well, why is that? It's because true and lasting satisfaction is not found in money or in things. It's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that should be satisfied according to Jesus. So this, this beatitude is a warning this morning. It's a warning that we are hardwired for desire. But there's only one desire that will ultimately lead to satisfaction. It's a warning that, that true satisfaction is found in one place and not in many places. It's a warning to the apathetic, give me a little God but not too much religion people out there that you'll never be satisfied. It's a warning against smug, self-righteous, self-improvement, I can do it, Religion. But it's also an invitation. It's an invitation out of self-righteousness and out of apathy and out of trivial pursuits towards the things of the world. Reminds me of the passage in Isaiah 55 that many will point you towards when you read this. Isaiah 55 talks about hunger and talks about thirst. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3. It's on the screen for you. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. 
And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. God looks out at his people and he says, come to me. It's an invitation. You're thirsty? Come to me. You're hungry? Come to me. I'll give you something that can satisfy you that you can't find out there in all the places that you're going. Or as in Jeremiah, he says, as you go hone out for yourselves broken cisterns. And you go looking for places and looking for things out in the world that you can only really find ultimately in me. So Jesus says, it's only those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that should be satisfied. So hunger and thirst, what does that even mean? Well, it's a picture of an intense, deep desire. When you, when you, in the Greek, it literally just means a desire for food and a desire for drink. It, it's desire. So Jesus could have just said, right, blessed are those who desire righteousness for they should be satisfied, but he didn't. He's, he, he chose a very visual word for a very real reason because he wants us to see it. He wants us to feel it. He wants to paint a picture of not just the, some ho-hum desire, but an intense longing like hunger, like thirst. Let me ask you, have you ever done a fast? Maybe you did it for spiritual reasons. Maybe you did it because the doctor said you had to before you could have the operation or the test, right? But most people, uh, by the time you're an adult, you've done some sort of fast, even if it's for 24 hours. I remember my first fast, I had not been preaching very long, and I decided that was a spiritual thing that you could do before you preach was to fast. So I chose to fast for three days. Never fasted before. Picked a three-dayer right out of the gate. Nothing but water and juice. Day one, you're your stomach begins to turn inside out. You've you got headaches because you're having caffeine withdrawals mostly. Um, you're weak. You're sluggish. You're tired by the end of the day. You really just want to go to sleep, right? You're like, is this supposed to help me pray? This doesn't feel right. You know, I think I would be more full of the Spirit if I had a full tummy right now. You, you begin to kind of question the Lord and what He means by fasting, right? You, you're going to wrestle with this because it has an effect on you. I remember after getting through that three days after preaching, I went to a big family meal and there was, you know, typical Alabama Sunday food. It was fried chicken and southern vegetables and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, I'm going to eat this table. And I ate like three bites and I was full, right? It just, it, it, when you're really hungry, it affects you. It begins to change your body. It, it, it can make you a little hangry. You know what I'm saying? I can get a little hangry. And Jesus' point is not that you're supposed to be so hungry and thirsty for righteousness that you're irritable and moody. But his point is that this is an Tense, just like hunger builds an anticipation and intensity inside your body and mind and angst within you that you have to have that because it's something you need. He's talking, he's pointing a spiritual parallel here. He's not talking about some weak, ho-hum desire. He's talking about having a desire for righteousness that is as intense as hunger for food and thirst for drink when you need it. An angst, an anticipation, an edge to this hunger and thirst. Because the point is this, this is your greatest desire. It's, it's not, yeah, I'd kind of like to have that. No, this, this is your greatest desire. See, when you're hungry or you're thirsty, that's all you want, right? As, I heard, as, as, as one preacher said, a hungry man don't want, you know, fill in the blank. All right, he don't want clothes. He wants food, right? He doesn't want a car. He wants food. He's thirsty. Hey, here, here, here's, a, here's a, it's a, a, a free nine holes down at the golf. I don't want that, right? I want something to drink, right? You don't want all this other. All you want is food and drink. It's, it's an intense, that's your greatest desire if you're really hungry and really thirsty. We have trouble relating to that because we're not very hungry and thirsty in our culture. We walk around with full stomachs. We want something to drink. We go over to the water fountain. For most of us in this room, that's the reality. We think hunger and thirst, you mean like what I feel like after I haven't had anything to eat for about two hours? Yeah, more than that. And he's saying it's, this is a very, it's a very basic desire, but it's to be your greatest desire. One person said, 
it pointed out that it's not blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for happiness. It's not blessed are those who hunger and thirst for satisfaction. In fact, you could fill in the blank with anything else and it wouldn't work. Jesus says it's blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Only those that hunger and thirst for righteousness will ultimately be satisfied. And that is a warning shot into our lives. Let us know why we may not be so fulfilled, why we may be so discontent. And even if we think we are satisfied and discontent, if we're not hungering and thirst for righteousness, it's going to be short-lived. It's also an invitation. So here's what we better know. We better know what Jesus means by righteousness. Because we get a lot of weird things in our mind when we think about righteousness. We think more about Pharisees and legalistic religion than we do about what Jesus had in mind when he said it when we hear that word. So what does Jesus mean? Because Jesus says unless you hunger and thirst for it, you're never going to be satisfied. I'm never going to be satisfied outside of that. So what does he mean? Well, it helps to look around and see where else Jesus used this term right here in this very sermon and right around it. In Matthew 5.10, a few Beatitudes later, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In verse 20 of chapter 5, very pertinent verse to this one, Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Over in chapter 6, verse 1, he said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And one of my favorite verses, Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I think the two most important verses for helping us understand this are verse 20 and chapter 6, verse 33. The idea that Jesus says your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the fact that Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because it helps us understand Jesus is pointing us to God's righteousness. See, when Jesus told them that their righteousness had to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, he was calling them to a different righteousness altogether than the scribes and Pharisees even had. The scribes and Pharisees would externally conform to the law on the outside, sort of. They didn't even always do that very well, but that, they tried to put on the facade that they were obeying God's law. But inwardly, there was no change. They were still eat up with the same lustful desires and perversions that, that, that any person far from God would, but they had masqueraded themselves to look godly. They cared more about looking godly than being godly. That's why it was so easy for them to reject the Son of God. He challenged the fact that they weren't as godly as they thought they were. So they had a self-righteousness. No internal transformation. And Jesus was calling his disciples, to, and you and me, to a righteousness that is inside out. He's calling us from a righteousness that comes, that, that comes from heart change. And ultimately, he's calling them, as we see in Matthew 6.33, to seek a righteousness that is outside of ourselves, a righteousness that's only found in God through Christ. So let me give you just a, a quick statement of what, what Jesus means here according to my study. Here we go. It's a deep hunger and thirst to personally know God, obey God, and see God's will done on earth. A deep hunger and thirst to know God, obey God, and see God's will done on earth. Let's break that down. Knowing God. When Jesus says righteousness, he means God. Because you can't have righteousness, as the commentators will tell you, outside of God. That's why Matthew 6.33, he says, seek his righteousness, God's righteousness. Because true righteousness, we don't have any. <laughs> Ours is flawed. Ours is messed up. So we need his righteousness. Just the very word. There are times, as commentators will point out, that in Matthew's gospel, he'll use a word that is put in there. Not really like a synonym, but it's, the purpose is to drive you and make you think about God. And that's what he's doing here. 
Righteousness at its very core is simple. It's being right with God. Right? At the root word is right. To be right with. And it's righteousness at its core means to be right with God. And when you get saved, when you become a Christian, when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you not only mourn your spiritual condition that you're a sinner, but you long to be right with God. The Spirit of God makes you hunger and thirst to be right with God. And you begin looking for how can I be right with God. I'm not just sorry for my sin. I want it gone. I want to be right with God. I want all to be well between me and God. And Isaiah tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags in the Old Testament. So our righteousness won't do. Our righteousness can't make us right with God. But the gospel points us to the righteousness that is a gift from God. We have to have righteousness come from outside of us and be gifted or imputed to us, placed upon us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, said, He, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who had no sin, so that we, that's you and me, could, be the righteous, could become the righteousness of God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our account that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, in Christ, God has placed his sin on Jesus and judged our sin on the cross so that he could place Christ's righteousness on believers. And see, when Jesus, Jesus didn't just die for you. He lived for you. He lived the life you couldn't live. You, you, you owe God a perfect, sinless, righteous life that you can't live, and Jesus lived it in our place. And so the first thing this does, the first thing this hunger and thirst does is it drives us to look for a righteousness to justify us before God that can't be found in ourselves and it drives us to Christ because we want to know God. We want to know Him. We want a relationship with Him and we know that can't be found in and of ourselves and we begin to look at Christ. Terry Johnson, in his book, When Grace Transforms, writes, the righteousness we are to seek is God's righteousness and God's righteousness can only be found in God. And I would add to that specifically in Jesus. See, hunger and thirst for righteousness will lead us to God and ultimately to Christ. Listen to what Paul, the apostle, says in Philippians 3. It's on the screen for you. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Does that sound like ho-hum faith? Does that sound like, hey, I crossed it off my list today, faith? No, that is a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that can only be found in Christ and a desire to know Him deeply. In John 6, 35, Jesus said these words, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All through the New Testament, you see that in John 4, Jesus tells the lady at the well, if you drink the water I'll give you, you'll never thirst again. The idea of hungering and thirsting is supposed to lead us to Christ. The idea of righteousness is supposed to lead us to Christ. It's a deep desire to know God. Without it, you won't be saved. Without it, you're not saved. Listen, if there's no hunger and no thirst to know God, no hunger and no thirst to have Christ's righteousness applied to your account, there's no salvation. We're outside the kingdom without that. That's the only way into the kingdom is to be clothed in Christ's righteousness through faith in Christ. And people that know Jesus want to know him more. They want to know Christ. They want to know God. They want to know that they're in a 
close fellowship with the Lord. So it's hunger and thirst to know God and to obey God. See, Christians want to be godly. They long to be holy is the word. They long to be Christ-like, to be conformed to Christ in their character, to become more and more like Jesus. Put it another way, Christians hunger and thirst to do what is right in the eyes of God. And this is the very heart of what Jesus is driving at here. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote these words in his studies in the Sermon on the Mount. Quote, To hunger and thirst after righteousness is nothing but the longing to be positively holy. It means that one's supreme desire in life is to know God and to be in fellowship with Him, to walk with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the light. As 1 John talks about walking in the light. It's about our desires. It's about what we really want more than anything else in life. It's deeply personal. It deeply affects everything about you. It, 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 strikes, it just strikes a blow at this idea of this formalistic, ritualistic religion that has no heart change, no life change, and doesn't compel your desires or change your passions whatsoever. It says that is dead and worthless. If you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, you won't be satisfied, and you're not truly blessed. Things are not as well between you and God as you might think. Pastor Johnny Hunt, former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, I heard him say one time many years ago, when he got saved, Jesus changed his want-tos, right? His desires begin to change. Because true believers care about living godly lives. We thirst for that. There may be some here this morning that have never had your, your want-tos, your desires changed. There's no wrestling with sin, man. You're pinned to the mat. And the reason that you're spiritually apathetic and spiritually lethargic may actually be that you're spiritually, now listen, could be that you're spiritually dead. And that's a reality that we have to be willing to consider. If we're not willing to put those cards on the table, we're just playing church. We, we, we need to be willing to examine ourselves in that light. But for many, their desire to obey God and their desire to be like Christ is not as great as their desire to earn money or to be in a relationship with someone, or to be successful, or to have power and influence. In other words, they have greater desires that trump the desire to be like Christ, or to be godly, or to pursue God's righteousness, or to know God, or to obey God. And while every believer fights a battle against the desires of our flesh and of the old self, people that are not in the kingdom are given over to those desires that crowd out and defeat the desire for obeying God or knowing there are just a lot of folks that they have things that they would rather have than Christ's likeness in their life. You may see someone get super spiritual due to a crisis or felt need in their life and they're looking for answers and so all of a sudden they get super spiritual. They're at church, they're this, they're that, and then all of a sudden that felt need gets met and you can't find them with a search warrant. It's because they didn't hunger and thirst for righteousness, they hunger and thirst to be fixed, to have the issue fixed. And once it's met, they're gone. Or they come to a place where they have to choose between Christ and sin, and they choose sin because their hunger and thirst is not for righteousness. Christians come to church. Christians read the Bible. Christians pray. Christians live in community with one another because deep down we know we need it in our pursuit of being like Jesus. We know it helps us. That's why we do it. We want to be like Christ. We want to be more holy. We want to obey God in our lives. We struggle. We fail. We mess up. But because there's a hunger and thirst for righteousness in our soul, a soul hunger within us, it keeps us coming back even after we've blown it. Keeps us coming back. Because we know we can't be satisfied 
outside of that. We've learned that. We know that. The Spirit of God has taught us that. And we also hunger and thirst to see God's will done on earth or to see justice on earth, to see righteousness reign on earth. What I mean here is that you want to see what is right in God's eyes happen not only in your heart but in your environment, in the world that you live in. Believers have a deep desire to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray that way. Why are we to think believers wouldn't have a heart and desire for that? We want to see hungry people fed and abused and neglected and oppressed people have justice. We want to see sin be gone and all the oppression and injustice that comes with it. We don't just mourn sin. We long for righteousness and justice to reign in the earth. So when we see injustice, it should bother us. When we see unrighteousness, it should bother us, not in some judgmental way, but in an aching way that we hunger and thirst for things to be right. And that should affect how we spend our money and what we do with it. It should affect our politics and how we vote. It will, it will shape and it will change and it will more, you'll find yourself, the more and more you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the more unsatisfied you'll be with a lot of things that go on. And he says, only those people will be satisfied. That Greek word for satisfied means the feeding of an animal until it was full or content. One commentator said it was like fattening up the, the cattle for slaughter. Just completely full, as full as you can get. I think about sitting at the table at Thanksgiving and you say these words, I'm full, right? I don't want anything else. Completely content. And it's only those who look to God, who look to Christ for the righteousness, who hunger and thirst to obey and know Him and to see His will done that will be to have that kind of satisfaction. But in this life, there's always a hunger and thirst. See, while you're satisfied with Christ and while there's a contentment in life, there's, in this life, there's always a hunger and thirst for more because you know, like Paul, you haven't attained to Christ's likeness yet. There's a gap between who you were and who you're supposed to be, right? And then you're, you're growing and you're maturing in Christ, but you'll never reach completion until glory. Until Jesus comes back or you die and stand in his presence and you're transformed in the twinkling of an eye. You'll never reach, so there's always this hunger and this thirst, right? Just like in life, you can eat and you're going to be hungry again. You can drink something and you're going to be thirsty again. It's just a part of life, to hunger and to thirst. It's a part of spiritual life in this life. But there's coming a day when righteousness will reign throughout the new heaven and the new earth where there will be no gap. You will be conformed to Christ's likeness. There will be no sin in your life or things to draw you away or to tempt you away from Christ. And you will be fully and finally satisfied completely forever. Ever. But there are in this life enemies to that hunger and to that thirst. There's at least three, I think, off this text. I want to share them with you before we go. Three enemies to this hunger and thirst for righteousness. Number one, you can be blinded by false righteousness. You can be blinded by false righteousness. Some people, even in the church, go on unsatisfied, discontent with their quote-unquote Christian life because they are actually trusting in self-righteousness, which is really a false righteousness. That was the Pharisees and the scribes in Jesus' day. They looked like the most spiritual crowd, as I said earlier, but on the inside, they were no different. They were no different. In Matthew 9, 12, and 13, they were giving Jesus a hard time for hanging out with sinners. Who are you to hang out with these sinners? And this is what Jesus said to them when he overheard it. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, 
Go and learn what this means. Hey, go and learn what this means, he says. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. See, the righteous people, those who don't know that they're spiritually sick, who are blinded to it, they won't ever really get the gospel. They may adhere to some things. They may have it all up here that they understand, okay, I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. And it's all filed away up here, but there's no heart change and there's no heart rest because they're blinded by their own righteousness because they, deep down they don't understand really, they don't really think they're that bad. They don't think they need a Savior. When I used to preach in evangelistic settings a lot, many times I'd have people, especially with youth, I'd have them write down on a sheet of paper the answer to this question, why should God let you into heaven? And they would be anonymous. And then I would review those before I got up to preach. I'd have them do it. We'd have like a pizza supper. And they would do it during like the pizza supper. And I was always surprised by how many people would say something like this. Because I go to church and pray, I try to be a good person. I'm doing the best I can. And even in the church, many times Jesus was relegated to footnote status. He was lost in the bibliography somewhere, but he was not on the title page. And that was a huge red flag to me. And our churches are full of it. Many people never get past belief in their own goodness. That's the problem. They try to add Jesus and his righteousness to their life without understanding. Unless they reject their righteousness, they can't have his. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, moral people, they, they try to repent of the bad things in their life, but they're always going, you know, but I did this, and that's pretty good, and I did, and they're always kind of got the scale going. I've been pretty good here. I know I messed up here, but look what I did. Look where I served. Look where I got it right. Whereas a, a true Christian understands my righteousness is filthy rags, and I've got to reject that, and I've got to reject the good and the bad because none of it's going to get me to heaven. None of it's going to give me a right standing with God. I need a righteousness that comes from outside of me. And our righteousness can't hold up. Now, it may appear that way to me and you. We might think it can, right? We walk around like we we think we're somebody, and we might think that our righteousness holds up, but it doesn't. Just the other night, Cannon comes running to to his mom, and he had been eating red sauce and spaghetti for for dinner, right? And he had red sauce all over his hands. So he sent him to the bathroom to wash up, and he comes running out of the bathroom. He he was so proud. I cleaned my face. I cleaned my face all by myself, Mom. And there's this red sauce just all over his face, right? Yeah, good a try, right? He didn't even, I mean, he's he looking in a mirror and couldn't see it, right? It was all over his face. And that's what people are like who are walking around like somehow we're good enough, somehow we're righteous enough, somehow we're moral enough, and God's like, no. And people that know you best are like, no. Your wife's like, no. Your kids are like, no. You, we, we think, no, no. And if we think that, it's because you're comparing yourself to other people instead of Jesus, number one. Or you are so, and I don't mean this in an offensive way, but listen, you're so ignorant of God's holiness that you have a foolish understanding of how serious your sin is in his eyes. It's one of those two reasons. Either you're comparing yourself to other people and you feel pretty good, or you just don't understand God's holiness. And so you think, it's just a little sin? I'm not as bad as the other guy. You know, I I did this, but I didn't do this. And you're blinded by false righteousness. So you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, for true righteousness. Number two, you can be distracted by lesser desires and lesser satisfactions. Lesser desires, lesser satisfaction. Blaise Pascal taught that we all have a God-shaped void in our life. You've probably heard that phrase before, the God-shaped hole. What he means by that is you're made for God. 
You're created in God's image for God's glory. And you have a natural hunger in your life, a desire in your life for God because you're created for Him. You're created to know Him and have fellowship with Him and to be known by Him and to be loved by Him and to know that it is well between you and God because God formed you that way. You're made in His image. But since sin has entered the world, there's a void there because we're disconnected from God. We don't have that relationship. We're separated from Him. And we try to fill that chasm, that, that void with other things that are really lesser things. And, and settle for satisfaction that's just way less than what we could have and what we're really hungry for. And it's because our sin has warped our desires and our value system. We don't get it. We don't understand that God's of supreme value more than anything else we could ever want or have. You know, when I was a kid, I had an uncle that would try to trade me a, a, a nickel for a dime. When I was real small. The reason he did that is because the nickel was bigger than the dime. And he would try to see how stupid I was, I guess. And so, you know, mean trick to play on your nephew, I guess. And he would say, you know, he'd offer me the nickel so if I get that. And it didn't work on me. Not that my recollection anyway. But the idea was, it looks that way. So you would probably rather have the nickel than the dime. And here's the thing. Sin has so blinded us. It has so distracted us. It has so warped us that our value system is so off that people do this spiritually because they don't see God's worth clearly. They don't see his value clearly. They see success and money and power, sex, family, promotion, some things that are good, some things that are bad, and that seems more fulfilling to them in the moment than God, not because it is, but because sin has warped their perspective and caused them to devalue God. And they are trading Dimes for nickels all day. Because sin's made us foolish. And our hearts are darkened. C.S. Lewis said it this way. I love this. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. He says, quote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lesser satisfactions, less, we settle for lesser fulfillments. We, we settle for the creation instead of the creator. We, we, we settle for the good things God can give us instead of for God himself. Because we don't realize that the hole in our heart that we're trying to fill is too big to be filled with anything other than God. It's infinite. You know, when I was a kid, we, I remember one summer, we, me and my uh, cousin, we were at my grandmother's house during the day, and there was a place in her backyard that was behind some bushes where they couldn't see, and we decided we'd go back there and dig a hole to China. Okay? I don't know if you know you could do that, but as a kid, I learned you could do that. And so we had a huge hole. I mean, we could stand in it. I mean, we got this thing huge. Like, and we had shovels. We'd sneak off back there with our shovels and our, you know, we're out there and we're just digging, we're digging. You're like, I don't see, I don't hear anything yet. You know, and we just, we're like four or five, six years old. You know, we're just, we're just little bitty, you know, entertaining her. So I think she knew, I don't think she cared. She was just like, hey, you're outside, right? And, <laughs> and I think about how silly that looks, right? We laugh at that. And that's what people are doing. That's what we're doing. That's what you're doing when you're trying to fill a God-shaped void in your life with anything other than God. You have no idea how big the task is. 
that nothing else can do that. It, it, it's, it's silly. It's, it's crazy to think, just as crazy as it is that you can dig a hole to China, that you can take a shovel and dig a hole to China, it's just that crazy to think that somehow your family or your career or some passion or pursuit or whatever else can fill the hole that only God can fill. It's like going to a swimming pool and deciding you're going to fill it up with a Dixie cup with one pour. Not going to happen. And many people are going to settle for lesser pleasures and lesser satisfactions in this world instead of having the only thing that can truly satisfy beyond this world. Because there is a temporary satisfaction to be had in some of these things. Let's not lie about that. There is. You might be saying, hey, I'm, I'm, whatever, I'm, this is what brings me happiness and that's my pursuit of that and I, and I feel pretty happy. I'm just telling you it can't bear the weight of eternity. It just can't do it. Even if it gets you through this life, it's going to fall apart in eternity. If you look to your spouse for your ultimate satisfaction, they'll never be good enough. It'll crush you. It'll tear apart your marriage. You'll nitpick people to death. And when things don't go well, boy, are you in for it. Your parent, if it's, if what defines you and gives you lasting satisfaction is being a good parent, right, and getting it all right, and you've got this idea of how your kids are supposed to turn out and all that, I'm just telling you, when they rebel or when they don't do something right, it's going to crush you. When they don't turn out to be what you thought, when they don't make straight A's, when they don't go after the career path that you want them to go to, right, and not only that, they can't bear up under that, and when they hit 18, they will likely fly out of your house at 200,000 miles per hour because they can't wait to get away from it because it's crushing because what you're doing is you're saying, be my God. Be my fulfillment. And they weren't made for that. They were made in God's image, not made to be your God. Your career, if your career is where you get all your lasting satisfaction, what happens when you retire or you get laid off or you're missing a step and you're just not quite as good at what you do as you used to be? That happens to all of us. If it's money, what do you do if you lose it? What do you do if the stock market crashes? What do you do when, when you die and you find out that you can't take your bank account with you? What if it's just being a good person, right? It's contributing to the human race and being a, a, a good person and a good dad or a good mom and a good husband or wife and just being good. Well, what do you do when you mess up? What do you do when you absolutely blow it morally because it's going to happen if it's, you're going to buckle underneath that pressure? See, some don't hunger for righteousness because too easily settled for lesser satisfaction. And there might even be some believers in the room today who have been drawn away to lesser desires, lesser satisfactions. They've settled, even sometimes for good things. Because when you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing, that's a bad thing. And you become a workaholic, or you begin to worship your family, or you begin to worship success and get addicted to success and addicted to achievement. Those are all things. Nothing wrong with being successful, achieving, having a family. Nothing wrong with work. You should do all those things, but at the end of the day... They are not made to be ultimate things. And sometimes it's bad things. Sometimes it's not the exaltation of good things. Sometimes it's the pursuit of things that we know are wrong. When we drink from the toilet, we shouldn't be shocked that we're not hungering and thirsting for the things of God or for God anymore. Right? When you drink from the toilet, that is pornography. There are probably men in this room right now who are addicted to pornography. The statistics are too alarming. I heard a pastor say the other day that 77% of the men in his church were addicted to it. I've heard other statistics. You can't be shocked that when you drink from that poisonous well that you don't come back hungry and thirsty for God. 
You can't be shocked when you go abusing substances and looking for life and happiness and contentment in the bottom of a bottle that you don't come back hungering and thirsty for God. See, fighting the battle to be hungry and spiritually hungry and thirsty involves both rooting out sinful things that can rob us of that hunger and reorienting the good things in our life so that they are in the right place in our new reoriented universe that is submitted to King Jesus. It involves both those things. Thirdly and finally, the third enemy, the third thing that can keep you from hungering and thirst for righteousness is suffering from spiritual malnourishment. This is for believers in particular. If you find yourself not as hungry and thirsty for righteousness as you once were or should be, it may be that you're not eating. What do you mean? Well, because physically, the more I eat, the less hungry I am. The more I drink, the less thirsty I am, Right? In fact, I can eat too much and get sick, but spiritually it works reverse. The more I eat, the hungrier I get. The more I drink, the thirsty I get. The more I know of God, the more I give myself over in submission and surrender to God, the more I hunger and thirst for righteousness and feed on God's word, his will, his purposes, his promises, the more I hunger and thirst for the things of God. It increases the hunger. So the more you read your Bible, the more you'll want to do just that. The more you pray, the more you'll want to pray. And even the more you obey God and live out your faith, it's like it's addictive. The more you'll want to do it. It's just the way it works. It's the way God has wired us. Because you're giving your life over to the Spirit and you're no longer in control. Your appetites are being shaped by God instead of by you now. And there's a reason that some of us struggle with having any spiritual disciplines in our life. Can't even go seven days in a row reading a Bible and it's real simple. It's because you've never done it. Not as a habit. And so it hasn't been formed. And so you're not as hungry and thirsty as you could be. Because Some people, because it's been a habit for many, 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 many years to read their Bible regularly, when they go without and they miss a day or two days or three days or something happens, I mean, they can feel it and it bothers them. And and they just don't feel the same. Because new appetites have been formed in their life. And if you aren't practicing the disciplines of gathering with believers on a regular basis and getting in the word and praying, don't be surprised when you grow spiritually lethargic and apathetic and and lazy. You'll find it easier and easier to give in to temptation and to slowly begin feeding yourself with that well of lesser pleasures and lesser satisfactions that we talked about. So here's the question this morning. Here's the question. Have you been driven to Christ? and his righteousness by your desire to be right with God? Are you one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness more than anything else? Do you desire to obey God, to be like Christ more than anything else? Has Jesus changed your want-tos from the inside out? That's number one. Do you know Christ? Has he changed you from the inside out? Are you trusting in your righteousness or the perfect righteousness of Jesus to save you? That is the most important thing. If you don't hear anything else today, hear that. That's the difference in heaven and hell, life and death. That's, what it's, that's the whole shebang. That's what it's all about. Do you know Jesus? Do you know God through Christ? Has his righteousness been applied to you by faith? And secondly, Christian, believer, are you spiritually malnourished this morning? Or having been delivered from your sins, have you found yourself settling for lesser satisfactions in this world? Having trusted Jesus and his righteousness alone for your salvation, have you grown spiritually proud and self-reliant? Today is a warning. This beatitude is a warning that satisfaction is found in only one place. And today is an invitation. 
back to that place, back to that person, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.